0: (音声) I don't know. Welcome to the Front End Nerdery Podcast, a podcast about front-end development and design. I'm your host, Todd Libby, and my guest today is co-founder of Mule Design, speaker and author extraordinaire, Erica Hall. Erica, how are you today?
1: I'm doing uh, very well, actually. Thank you. It's great to be chatting with you.
0: Yes, nice to be chatting as well uh, on this end. It's been a while since, I guess, I think it was quarantine book club
1: That's yeah yeah that seems like yeah. a whole other era now <laughs> Wow
0: yeah yeah so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself
1: oh oh gosh uh, I've been I actually since this is front-end nerdery I will say I started my career as a front-end developer really ish um, back when that was like in its little primordial state. And uh, and then I got into uh, design consulting Uh, and I've been a design consultant for a very, very long time and have co-run my own agency for basically the entire 21st century. And uh, it's a good time. And other than that, I'm a, you know, haver of opinions about town. That's that's me. Ride my bike around with my dog in a backpack. That's that's what I do.
0: I see some of those. I see a lot of those pictures on Instagram, and they're yeah. they're really they're, they're really cool pictures. So uh, I'm going to hop right into the questions here. So, how did you get started in your uh, d- web development or design journey?
1: Well, um, uh, I went to a liberal arts college, and because nothing. Is vocational. There's a lot of freedom, and so I studied Russian and philosophy and became a philosophy major. And you know, when you when you graduate with a philosophy degree, what are you going to do? Really, you're going to go to law school, uh, you're going to be a barista, yeah. um, uh, you're going to go on an, into academia. But I'd always always been really interested in technology. Like I was a little girl who hung out at Radio Shack, mm-hmm. right? And I was, for whatever, I don't even know. And it wasn't until later that I connected the fact that I think it was sort of in the air because uh, two of my uncles sold microchips. So I think it was just like, that was sort of around, but I was always, I was, I got Omni Magazine. I was really into sci-fi. I was like a super little nerd, but also really into stories and literature and storytelling. So I did the philosophy thing. And then it was a recession, and the web was really just getting started, and I was interested in publishing and stuff. And then after my first, uh, my very first job was at a venture capital investment partnership. I didn't know what that was, but they were just looking for somebody, uh, you know, who would work for cheap and, and would like wear a suit or whatever and with it was a recession and i had a philosophy degree so i was like cool i don't know what you do uh i guess i'll work with you sure you'll pay me enough to pay rent great and then over the course of my time there while well, i sort of like sussed out what the rest of the job market was and i got this dawning awareness of what they did <laughs> they regretted hiring me so hard because i "Like, wait a second This is what you do here. What like entrepreneurs come in with a dream and then you buy that, and then and that was when founder terms were a lot less friendly than they are now. And so, I I witnessed a lot of like founder firings, and I'm like, and then you take their dream and you scale it up and you get rich off of their dream, and that's interesting to you. Like, that's just making money is interesting to you. (laughs) What. Yeah. So they were happy when I was like, hey, so the web is here now and I'm going to go do that. (laughs) And they were like, it's been great. It's been great. Um, Yeah. So then when I was there, I just I started just talking to people. I did the thing right. I did the what color is your parachute thing where I would just call people up and get in touch with them and say like, hey, I'm interested in, in tell me about your job. Right? And it really, it worked in a, in a weird way. And, I, and eventually I talked to people just like asking them about their jobs. And then somebody said, well, they, we need a contractor here to help out with a little research project. So weirdly, my very first kind of web job was a, like doing research, like calling people and asking them, uh, you know, about how they were using emerging web technology. And I did this and it didn't even occur to me that research was kind of my first job until much later uh, because that was just a short amount of time. And because I was kind of a go-getter because I really needed to pay rent. It's amazing. Like, that's so motivational uh, because I didn't have a job. Like, I quit at a certain point. I just quit the other job. And I'm like, I'm just I have to go do something else now. And uh, and so the guy who ran that business unit was like, hey, we're really spinning up. It was a tech publishing company. And they said, we're really spinning up internet-y stuff. And you seem keen, you want a job. And so, yeah, so they did the thing where I like did informational interviews and had a job created for me. So I was super lucky, super lucky. And then I was in this little business unit that they didn't know. They're like, we don't know what to do with the web. And, uh, and I just hung out and like, in this little group. And I'm sure there were groups like this in companies all around the country. And I just learned to code while they were figuring out what to do. I yeah. I, I had my BB edits open. I mm-hmm. had my my Perl. You know, I'd like practice learning Perl while web pages were loading like that. That was <laughs> that was the it gave me time to be like, oh, I'm gonna test this little script while I wait for the page to load because we had modems. Uh, yeah and that's I was sort of off uh off on my career at that point and I was like oh thank god (laughs) I have a job this is cool I have health insurance this is cool
0: so you know speaking of research uh we're gonna I was gonna get into the couple the two books you have the first one being just enough research which is now in its second edition um the changes are, there's from what I understand. I haven't been able to read the second the second uh, edition yet, but the changes are a new chapter on surveys. And is there anything else that's new in the book? Uh,
1: the chapter on surveys is really the uh, the biggest change. I mean, it's it's thicker overall. I went back when I went back through it when I realized that uh, the book was still useful. And I just, I really wanted to update it because it was like five years old when I decided to update it. I, I went back through it and I was pleased because, you know, you write a book and then you immediately put whatever was in the book out of your mind because <laughs> it was a traumatic process. And I went back and I was pretty happy with how well it held up. I think because so much of it is about foundational principles and I'm, I'm super tool agnostic and, uh, and I just really wanted to give uh, folks a foundation that hadn't changed, and so updating, uh, updating the parts that were that referenced anything that was obsolete, and of course, um, you know, more like mobile stuff was even. I don't know. It was so it was a lot of little updates, and then it was uh, adding the chapter on surveys, which I'd left out because in the first edition I thought. People should not be doing surveys unless they know what they're doing. Like surveys are a really advanced technique, but because we live in the real world and there are so many survey platforms and it's so easy to run surveys. I'm like, well, I guess guess I'd better write that chapter. And yeah, so the whole thing was basically, I, I mean, I went through and with my editors like really did a very thorough rewrite uh like touched basically everything but a lot of the core uh uh, a lot of the core if something was good it stayed right if it worked it stayed uh so I added a lot it was a lot of back and forth of please we have to make your book less thick and uh and they would like cut out my jokes and I'd put my jokes back in a real fight for my jokes yeah (laughs) and so uh yeah so that's really it so you can so everything in that book that made it because it's so it's a it's a thick little book everything in there was something that was subject to a lot of uh, a lot of vetting I would say because I had to really justify really hard to get it to that point uh yeah so that's so that's basically like an update the new material but I mean it really does it covers a lot of different areas and so uh yeah oh and I totally just ripped out instead of mentioning any tools at all because there are so many tools and platforms that are research specific Uh, that was like I'd say one of the biggest changes from when I first wrote it that I was just like use whatever works for you because it's it's basically impossible to recommend anything just because there are so many options
0: yeah there are so before I read the book, the the first one when I bought it, I was always under the assumption because doing the job that I do in accessibility, I I do I do a fair share of research, and I'm thinking, oh, it's just looking up stuff and just throwing. But there's so much more to research than just looking up things and and reading it and and implementing that or you know. Mm-hmm using that knowledge. So what I was going to ask is how important is research and what more is there to it than just looking things up on Google, for instance?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I think a lot of people who are very enthusiastic about research forget the power of looking things up on Google because there's so much out there. So whenever I hear people say, oh, we don't have time or money for research. I'm like, have you looked to see what's actually, what's available? Uh, so, so I'd say like research, if you're solving a problem, like, or making a decision, I would say research is fundamental and essential, except I would maybe, cause the word research really trips people up. Cause when you hear that word, you think that the output is some sort of report or some sort of new insight that no one has ever had before. Like there's this academic standard that I think people have in their minds that prevents them from doing research. But just like you mentioned, Google, the reason Google is so valuable is because we, as just people in the world who use the internet are doing research constantly, but we don't really, we don't even think of it because it's so easy. You know, if you're planning a trip, If you're making any decision at all, if you're deciding what to have for dinner tonight, you will do research, and you'll do different types of research. You will talk to people. You will look things up on the internet. You will, you know, sometimes you'll want a description, and sometimes you'll want a measurement. Uh, You know, you might be moving into a new area and say, "Oh, what's the what's the average price per square foot of an apartment or a house?" That's, that's like doing quantitative research, but we don't think about it because we just do it. But then you go into the workplace where research has a little baggage around it. And it's like, oh no, we're gonna suddenly, our organization is gonna invest months of people's time and hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And, but we're not gonna learn anything. And that's ridiculous. Because yeah. if somebody went to you and said, you can't, you're not allowed to use a search engine anymore in life. You'd be like, I can't live. <laughs> yes. how, how do I live?
0: Exactly. That's, it's become a norm for people now, especially, yeah. you know, the people that, you know, we're working in web design or development or anything else, but that's a norm. So yeah, that's, mm-hmm. I never really thought, I never really thought of that. So yeah, that was.
1: People that was great. don't. It's yeah. funny. People don't. Uh, just yeah because it's such a scary word so it's always like oh we don't have time we don't have money and it's like this is it it's it's a thing you do and it's a set of skills you have if you're not worried about the organizational politics of engaging in something called research
0: right right so one thing that I when I was reading the first book and reading through it one thing that I kind of it kind of hit, hit hit me uh, and i never knew it there's a difference between research questions and interview questions so can you tell listeners what those different a little bit about what those differences may be
1: oh yeah that's that's a great question because it took me a while to really understand how poorly understood that concept was i was running a research workshop or maybe for maybe three years with that, an activity around that as part of the workshop until I really, really, it got through to me, whoa, this is poorly, poorly understood. So the research question, and, and I think the most important uh, part of doing research is being really clear on what you need to know. And again, if you're making a decision in your life People get super clear about what they need to know. If you're forming a query for Google, people understand what they need to know. But it's it's like, what do you what do you actually need to know? Do you want to know like how people are currently accomplishing some task in the world? Do you uh, do you want to know like what the distribution of a certain type of device is in the population? Do you want to know how many people are still using older hardware? Is that what you most need to know? Um, do you want to know what the, the world is, is like for people with um, it, you know uh, visual impairments or who use assistive technology? Like that's your question But that but then once you know that then you can say well how do I find that out? Is it by talking to people? And then and then you might ask people questions but the questions you ask somebody you um, And a good real world example is uh, we worked with a a, a state tourism office and they wanted to understand how people uh, budgeted and spent money on vacations. But if you go to somebody and you ask them directly, so how do you spend money on vacations? Like right like that, they will make up a story that makes it sound like they're so organized, right? Oh, of course I set aside money and I Decide my spending priorities in advance. And that's total lies, right? Because the real truth is like, you know, you have a vacation budget in your mind. And once you're on vacation, you're like, whatever, you know, this is like, I'm in a special context. And so the actual interview question would be something like, oh, walk me through your last vacation from when you first had the idea to when you got home. Walk me through that process. And, and, you don't, and then you can ask them, like, if they mention spending money, you're like, oh, tell me, like, tell me more about that. And you don't ask, you find out why, but you don't ask them why. And you find out what their priorities are, but you don't ask somebody, oh, what are your priorities? Like, it's, it's like called revealed preferences and revealed behavior, because if you ask somebody directly, it, it, it's like the same reason that we're learning that people are terrible eyewitnesses, right? People are unreliable reporters of their own behavior. And so you have to find ways. If your question is about people's behavior, you might ask them a very different question verbatim when you're talking to them to find that out. Or your research question might be something that you don't even do interviews for. But there's so much confusion because people hear research and they immediately think interviews. Even That is like a workhorse topic. But... It's not necessarily the right thing to do, and you won't know the right thing to do until you're clear on your question.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, is there a, and this is, I guess, the question just popped up in my mind. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite part of, or what is the best thing about research in your opinion?
1: Oh, the best thing, it's like learning things is. Fun. And I think, I think there's so much tension around like getting budget or permission or needing to do research and feeling like you don't look like an expert. People forget that. Like, why are we in this job? Like, why do we work with, you know, design and technology and things like that? Because it's, we're always learning, right? Yeah. There's always a new technique or a new tool or a new service or new product you're working on. So we're in this business because we like learning and it's fun. It is fun to learn things and it's fun to learn things about people. Mm -hmm. That's the whole reason we do this stuff is because we're solving problems for people. And so that, I mean, that's really the best part. And I think if you're not having fun doing research, it's like something's wrong. Like it should be fun. And I feel like we've kind of lost that. Cause, cause once, mm. it, it makes your work so much more meaningful, right? I, I'd say uh, if, you're, um, you know, if you've learned things about people and you know, you're like, oh, I've, I've learned that this particular interaction is difficult for people. So now I can make it easier. And all of a sudden you feel, you're not just like sitting there coding and hoping that like it's doing something for somebody out there in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a good point. To, you know, you brought up, you know, learning. Because um, I, I, and I haven't been sticking to this lately, but I, I wrote down that learn one new thing every day during the work week and even carry that into the weekend when mm-hmm. I'm relaxing or something. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, that's a good point. So, and there's Rupert right there.
1: <laughs> yeah. He, he, he wanted he wanted up on the lap here
0: he is a cameo there he is, there he is. <laughs> so the other book you have conversational design um see all my books are in storage so i wish i'd been able to go through that <laughs> before i i would i talked to you today but um i grabbed a couple things off the a book apart website so it says, how do we make digital systems feel less robotic and more real? So how do we do that?
1: How do we do that? So it, it's by really starting from understanding everything. It's like everything is understand people. And uh, the, reason, the reason I wrote this book, like my first conference talks and uh, were about the importance of using like conversational language in interfaces and just the importance of natural language in interfaces just even on web pages uh, making it sound like humans wrote it because if you look at a lot of the web it sounds just like dry, corporate, formal and it's so inefficient right As opposed to saying something really directly there's there's all this written language And so if you really look, at how people interact with each other and, and how they interact with the world and what they need from the world without reference to any technology, then you can say, Oh, how do we how do we solve that need in terms of just a human inter- interaction? Because I think especially once we got to the point where we could have what people think of as conversational systems, you know, the the chat bots, the uh, you know the Google Homes and the Alexas and things like that. Ironically, the design was really technology first. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we can store like all this data in the cloud, and we can have um, uh, machine learning systems and, and all this stuff. And it and these systems, especially the ones that first when they first launched were ironically really, really hard to use, even though they were so-called conversational. They were harder to use than just a good website. Mm-hmm. A good website can, can feel really conversational because it's like interacting with you and it's fast and there's this give and take. And there are all these principles that make conversation work. And that's what I talk about in the book. And a lot of so-called conversational systems don't follow the deeper principles of conversation. It's just on the surface, oh, it looks like you're texting. It looks like you're, you're you know, you're, it sounds like you're talking, but they're really failing to be conversational and they're fail- So the humans still have to do extra work to make it seem like uh, you're having a reasonable conversation with a home speaker. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you really step back and this is the, uh, an exercise idea that's really fun is you take a scenario uh, where you're trying to solve a problem for somebody in the world and you're like, what's the what do they really want? And what's the easiest way to, to help them in that scenario? And you might find that it's not a technological solution at all. And I think a lot of organizations don't do this because they think, oh, how can we fit our technology into people's lives as opposed to, oh, how do we really solve the problem and what technology helps us with that? It's like flipping it. Um, and this, it just got really bad with these, with these systems that are so much like I use bank of America and bank of America, uh, their agent is called Erica, which is like extra upsetting to me. And, uh, and it's, it's, I use it as an example in my talks because it, I, they did it, you know, for reasons I would just much rather have. Uh, I use online banking all the time. I would rather have good information architecture and a really fast like banking system than to sit there and have this give and take. I don't need a give and take with a bot to learn my balance. I want to like click on a thing and have it display my balance and click on something that's like show balance, transfer money. That stuff's all super fast. Texting, having a chat about that is not super fast. But then there are other times like customer service things where it's it's really, really good. Yeah. Um, you know, when I first started using online banking, it was very, very early. And I would telnet to my bank. And that was yeah. great. That was all because what do you need from banking? What you need is like, you know, here's a number. There's you need like maybe a list of transactions with amounts. You need a, it's a simple command, like transfer money should be. It's a really simple command, stuff like that. And I think yeah. that all gets lost when you start thinking of all the fancy technology, you lose what actually make things, makes things easy for humans.
0: Yeah, yeah, that reminds me of my bank. <laughs> because my bank's the same way. It's, it's, it's too much.
1: It's too it's much because yeah, because they, they, they want to have a story to tell. And it's like really what people need from their banks is you just, it's just moving numbers around. That's yeah. yeah, that's, that's it.
0: That's, I, I mean, all I want to do, and I guess this goes to pretty much any other site that I'm on, when I see that little pop-up come up, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm your virtual assistant, I go away, <laughs> just go away, go I don't away. deal with it.
1: Yeah, weirdly, the place that that's not being used more, like, I think at this point, telephone support should be like the exception that should be such an escalation point like why do i have to ever wait in a phone queue because it's Mm -hmm. so easy to triage and it's easy to multitask like you can't multitask that easily while you're waiting there is no i I never feel my life force drain faster than when i'm in a telephone hold queue but it would be great if they that's a great place for like a bot What's your problem? Like here, is it one of these five potential problems? Uh, great. Okay. And then you've got somebody in the other end who can who can be in like 10 chats simultaneously probably and really help people very efficiently while everybody's like multitasking and doing other things. Like that's great. And then if it's like, oh, you actually do need to talk to somebody. Great. We'll have that person call you right back. Mm-hmm why aren't system i'm sure i know there are all these legacy reasons why (laughs) systems aren't designed like that yeah but it's like that's a great you know and i know they're coming online but it just it blows my mind that being on hold on the phone is still a thing at all
0: yeah that actually so when i was booking a flight to the conference I'm going to next week. I live, and this is just me being absent-minded. I booked the wrong city. I booked a flight to New Orleans instead of Atlanta. So I needed to go back and change that. So the the site that I used, they had that, you know, oh, we have 18 different ways to help you on the site and we wanna bombard you with a virtual assistant. But when I uh, when I called the 800 number, I had an hour and forty minute wait on the phone. Luckily, it was only barely over an hour, and I had nothing to do at the time. So, Um, but yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that's like they can get a virtual assistant in your face right away. Why can't that carry over to what you said, the phone queue?
1: And have them and, and and tell them what your issue is. And they say, oh, you're going to have to talk to an agent. An agent will call you back. Like these systems exist. And some people have them. Like yes. they, they, they just call you back. Yes. Like that is yeah. like figure that out. Because yeah. it, it exists. And that is such a huge. Everybody is always worried about like the next new fancy thing. And it's like fix, fix these pain points. Because those right. are the things. That are meaningful to paying customers, and um, uh, and really like save people's times and, and lives and, and stuff like that. And that's what they'll talk about. They'll say like, "Oh, I had to change a flight, and it was like super easy." Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, and to to be fair, this 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 website that I went through, they do have that system in place where they will call you back, but. Me being me, I was freaking out, going, "Oh my god, I gotta get this taken care of as soon as possible because I don't want to go to New Orleans when uh, I need yeah. when I need to go to Atlanta." So
1: I I came so close to getting a ticket to Lexington instead of Louisville once. Yeah, for a friend's wedding, for because I'm like cities in Kentucky, they're all they're all the same. So fun <laughs> fact, fun fact in America, if you're buying a plane ticket uh you have 24 hours of backseas those are the rules so yeah that's that's I, I don't know if everybody knows that but you can always like change or cancel in in 24 hours
0: i found that out probably what it might have been a, it was in within a week of me doing that where i found out that you know <laughs> i didn't need stress over that but you know
1: it's so stressful it's, Travel planning yes. Yes, is, is so, and I think especially now when we're maybe a little more out of practice, it's like, uh, uh, yeah, I was, <laughs> yes. I, I just yeah. had one one trip this year, and it's it's so especially when when the numbers are changing, and you're like, is this spontaneous? Is this suddenly going to cost me way more money? And now the airlines, everything's an add on, and I, I try to not, um, and I know we're at, it's the it's the travel tangent, but um, you know I I try not to be too annoyed because if you look in real terms, it's really cheap to fly and it's really safe. It's super safe and super cheap to get from point A to point B in this day and age. Like I know things are, are shaky in the in the COVID times, but the, I, they should put that message in front of you while they're nickel and diming you and saying like, oh, would you like a seat with an armrest? That's an extra $5. And, and you're <laughs> like, what? But then, but then, just go back and say like, "Oh, flying across the country in nineteen seventy was two thousand dollars or something. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So, you said you're working on another book.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it's been, you know, it's it's been well. I won't say it's been slow going. It's I mean, it has been going. Uh, yeah, it all started. Um, I would say in, in like twenty eight or 20, 2018, 2019, I definitely did the talk in 2019. I really started thinking about the connection between stories and value and thinking about user experience design and how the way that a lot of designers think and talk about business value is super uh, incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just get to the chase um, because designers uh, aren't taught at some really core, I would say economic and business principles. And, and so I, I looked at this and this set of issues and I, I wrote this big long post and I wrote this talk. And so the working title for the book is um, the business model is the grid, because it's about like, instead of the visual design grid that graphic designers are used to, the, the system, the invisible system that really constrains design is how value is exchanged. Right? And that sounds kind of wonky, but it's actually uh, just like research is like asking questions to Google every day. It's really understandable. And I think designers are just like missing this set of concepts that would really help them understand the role of their work um, and not be so on the defensive. Because I feel like a lot of designers are really on the defensive uh, with regard to business value and like, oh, we've got to prove this. And and I feel like a lot of the ways people are talking about it are inaccurate. And so I want to help with that. So I've been doing a lot of like, research and stuff for that this year a little getting to the writing getting to the writing part
0: yeah (laughs) so i guess when i heard business models i was like oh you know that's you know there are good business models out there but i don't think we see a lot of them we see more Mm -hmm. of the bad ones that are thrown on our face like certain Mm -hmm. websites Mm -hmm. that I won't name, but (laughs) I think we all know, you know, a few of them. Yep. Um, What are some good business models that stand out to you? Do you know that, you know, Mm -hmm. is there, are there any, you know, I'm sure there are. There
1: there absolutely are. And, and it's actually really easy to tell if (laughs) you're working with a good business model or bad business model. (laughs) It's like, if, um if what what makes the business money is actually good for the customer if those um goals and interests are aligned that's a that's a good business model uh for example and you're and you're not and you don't have the externalities right you don't have other harms that you're doing that like uh, Cause a lot of things uh, now we're so hooked on convenience. And so you can't say just what like feels good to interact with. It actually has to be healthy in like the broad sense. Like, Oh, if I keep using this service uh, it's a, it's a It's a genuine benefit to me. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm trying to think there, I mean, there are good ones. Like there are plenty, there's plenty of software. Mm-hmm. Right, that I subscribe to that's fine and it's a really clear and so when you talk about exchange of value, if it's like, Oh, um, I pay a certain amount of money. Um, and I get access to the software, and the software is a use it's a tool. It's like it's like now we subscribe to tools we used to own them, we now subscribe to them. Yeah. and. If it's something that like helps me in my daily life and I'm paying enough for them to make a profit and they're supplying something that's really useful for me um, and doesn't have harms, that's a fine business model. I think things get when you get these multi-sided marketplaces, right? The things like the ride share services, where or like ride hailing, because you're not actually sharing, um where the problem is that um you know, in order to uh, give me a ride at a like the, the prices are really not obvious. And in order to give me a ride at the price I want to pay, you either have to take investment from unsavory sources to subsidize the ride, in which case it's not a business, or you have to hide the true costs of being a driver from the driver. That's a terrible business model, right? A good business model is something where you you provide something of value and get value in return. And there are plenty. Like I go like to Cliff's Variety Store here and I feel like any business where you feel like, I feel super happy giving my money to these people. And I feel Mm -hmm. that all the workers are well paid. Like I go to the Alamo Draft House to see a movie. I'm like, take all my money, right? right? They provide a great service. They charge for it. They charge a not insignificant amount of money for it. And that's great, you know? It's like, like marketplaces are the whole reason why people come together, right? Um, and so it's fine. So I want designers to also think that it's fine to make money. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you have to make money in an ethical way. And the problem is that once an organization becomes publicly traded, once they go public, Then what you're really doing is shareholder-centered design, and it's good to be aware of that and what that means. Because shareholder value and customer or user value might diverge. Mm -hmm. And I don't think designers are talking about this enough because maybe you can't directly control it, but if you're aware of it, you can contribute to designing business models that are more ethical.
0: So, I'm getting down to the end of the question. There's two questions that I wanted to really ask uh, that are very, uh, I guess I can't even think of the word now, I just lost it. But tell me about the Atari game system because I can relate to that. That
1: Oh, (laughs) yeah, that. Um, Yeah, so I, I told you I was a nerdy child. And there was a point where I was like, I would like to learn how to program now. And again, not, well, I kind of know, like because I am ancient, when I was a small child, we actually did like a programming exercise using punch cards. So I've done done punch card programming. (laughs) (laughs) I am an ent, I am basically an ent. Um, But I want to learn how to program and so when it came time to make our, our Christmas lists, you know, going through the Sears wish book and all that, that real Gen X thing we all did, yep. I was like, I would like, uh, like Sears sold like Atari computers, like they made computers. And I'm like, I would like a computer. I'd like to learn to program. Um, and then Christmas morning rolls around. Yay. And there's a box under the tree and I open it up and I, or I, I get it and I'm like, sweet, this is. This is a like computer shaped box. And I open the paper and it's it's an Atari 2600. It's a game console. And I was like hot tears, hot angry tears. <laughs> I was so pissed. I was like, what? My family just wants me to like play video games? Like how, how tragic is that? That I was the child that was like, give me the extra homework. That is more fun for me. I was that kid. Right. Super annoying. Um, yeah. So I, I tried to fix my face before we did the big family get together. Um, so I wasn't, cause I was like, but I was angry and I was just like, they're like, how did you like the Atari we got you? And I was like, it's a game system.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's passive entertainment. I don't know a program. So then, for my birthday, uh, a few months later, I got a, I got a Commodore, uh, and I started to learn BASIC on that. I was like, "Thank you for this."
0: Yeah, that's where I learned. I wanted a Commodore, and I ended up getting. Um, what did they get me? They got me. Um, oh they got me the odyssey remember the odyssey game yeah they got me that
1: wow not even not even sorry
0: we we thought it was a computer
1: (laughs) Uh, it's tough this is like the lesson i feel like parents have really gotten like i I think especially it's so it's so easy to just buy everything instantly now supply chains aside i feel like parents have really gotten the specific specificity message about things that maybe you know we all have that as a child like for a birthday or something you ask for something and you get something like it or the cheaper version or the generic version or the wrong brand and everybody like every middle class American child has that like ah I mean yeah
0: that was my father always had to be the 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 name brand or the generic thing or the thing that the, the, the thing you'd find out of the back of a Buick maybe you know yeah.
1: <laughs> so. ah, we all this yeah. we all those stories uh, yeah so it was all fine and then um, and then it was funny because my second uh, the second sort of webby job I had the company I worked for started a little kind of internal startup around online communities like before social networks and their prototype was uh, for uh, like video and computer game, like gamer people, enthusiasts, people who played games, gamer people. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they said, hey, you're good at people and stuff or whatever they're like, you're gonna be the person like, who kind of runs the community. Um, like because there were other people doing the design and the technology and they were they said you're going to be a, you're going to be in charge of kind of nurturing this community. And what it amounted to was getting paid to play a lot of video games. <laughs> a lot of I got paid to play a lot of Resident Evil. And uh, yeah, and I just I laughed. I'm like, cool, oh, <laughs> this is great. I went to E3 a couple times.
0: Oh, wow.
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. It was it was fine while well, they figured things out. And I really got to see like the power of online community, uh, but the problem, and also the problem of online community is that because they, they eventually had to close it down and oh, that was a, that's a whole other thing. Um, but I, I really got to see that, to see how technology could facilitate real relationships. Like people really formed a lot of friendships on this. But the problem and the reason they shut it down is that going back to what we were just talking about, what's good for people it is not a moneymaker. Right. Like they, they could not figure out, even though there was this community, they couldn't really figure out how to turn a healthy little thriving community into a revenue source. You've got to start doing um, dicey stuff if to get that scale uh and then it stops being good like we all remember those of us who were in the early internet remember all our our little communities and I think I think a lot of this is happening on discord now I'm getting the Mm -hmm. sense that people like the healthy little communities are really are really happening on discord
0: yeah
1: um so that's cool to hear about um and of course we're all on like the the twitters and crap but uh but yeah, so that's my, that's my journey from being angry at video games uh, to, uh, to coming back around to really appreciate yeah. them.
0: Yeah, I can relate to that. Uh, and the last question before we get into the last three questions that I have is, I got to know, how was the last batch of lobster rolls I sent?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fantastic. Like, it's such a, like, we really appreciate that. It's such a treat. Um. Uh, yeah with the special butter that's very good very good so thank you thank you yeah, for that
0: welcome. I did manage to I I, <laughs> I opened up the freezer and it's it's had fallen in down onto the bottom so I managed to find an it's it's from when you sent me
1: ah they're so good of, right oh. I don't
0: I know yeah our regional
1: and, cuisine yeah, exchange
0: yes and so, when I got out here, um, and that was at the end of August, I had um, my partner set, uh, ordered a bunch of them and had them delivered here. So, there was a bunch of them waiting for me here.
1: Uh, uh.
0: And it was it was great because I was like, yes, I had those and I had those and I remember those and they were all good. So it was it was
1: great. So yeah. so good. Yeah. The, the funny thing is, when I went to because I, I grew up in Los Angeles and went to college uh, in New England, and when I came mm-hmm. home at the end mm-hmm. of my freshman year, coming home for the first time, I was going through Logan Airport, and right before the gate, they had a, a lobster tank where you could just like, and I'm like, that's funny. Um, and so I was like running of course late to get on my plane but it was literally right before the 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 gate and I run up and I was like can I just get like I got two live lobsters to bring home as gifts to fly with I'm like welcome to like death row air you know it felt a little weird but it was a funny thing like to come home from school in New England to be like I brought you living lobsters from Logan (laughs) Airport so, yeah,
0: I did that because uh, I went back to see my parents um, not too long ago and I went back because I had stopped at a donut shop where my cousin works and brought back a dozen donuts that home you know the homemade kind oh. not the dunking Dunkin kind but um, yeah that, that was a uh, I'm bringing I, it, I had those like guard them at all costs kind of thing. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, the last three questions I have are questions that I ask of everybody that I have on the podcast. So, the first one is what about the web these days excites you and keeps you excited in what you do?
1: Um, let's see. Uh, gosh. I, I mean, it's still, there's still so much there, like, it really, like, it's easy to get nostalgic for, like, well, there were 10 of us on the internet, and there were no ads or anything, yeah. um, but, but I think the fact that there is so much good that's there um, in different ways, it's like, TikTok is a, is cool and amazing. Like there's still so much on, you know, YouTube, and there's and people are still writing. And I think the fact that, like, the good part is that so many people can directly get their message out. And I still think that's a good thing. Yep. Um, the bad thing that I think we're dealing with right now. Is the fact that money the most money seems to be made from appealing to the worst part of human nature? That's that's where we are. It's like you can make money doing the good thing and helping to the good thing, but you can make the most money doing the bad thing, and that's just it's just true. So, if you want to make the most money, if that's your goal, and not like making money while also doing, doing this other thing, you make the most money doing bad things and putting out toxic messages and getting people really freaked out. So that's not good. But the good part is that if you teach people, again, if you teach people how to ask questions, if you teach people how to critically evaluate media, if you help people form positive relationships and friendships online, like, look at Quarantine Book Club, look at all the yeah. people we hang out with. Like, that was great.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it, was, it wasn't about getting rich, but I guess I guess Zoom people are making money facilitating some of this stuff, et cetera. So that's still there. So I think we're, um, we're in this moment of reckoning. And I think a lot of people are really reckoning with, oh, wait, maybe we shouldn't value what we're doing in terms of the market cap, right? Mm. Maybe we should value it in terms of how it's actually helping us, you know, do something good for various other values of,
0: of good. Right, right, yeah. So if there were one thing that you could change about the web that we know today, what would that be?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's, we need, we need regulation. I mean, yeah. that's, the, that's the thing. I think, be, I think there's been this myth, and again, like it's, it goes back to the power of storytelling. Um, there's been this myth that business on the internet is somehow totally different from other sorts of business. And like, there are no rules because we have to let it grow or else you'll quash innovation. That's garbage. That's garbage. We need, we need taxation and regulation as, as the check to all of this. Like, look, people have been able to do, people have been able to grow their companies. People have been able to concentrate a tremendous amount of wealth. It's just time to get a little bit more balance and to say, yeah, this stuff is unsafe and toxic. And this is the story of every industry, right? Mm. Like there used to be radium and like alarm clocks and asbestos and milk or whatever. I'm, I'm making that up, you know, and people <laughs> would make money by, by, and, 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 you know, we used to have a lot of, and we still, well, this is still an issue with the pollution and mm. et cetera, et cetera. And if you think of the fact, if you think of internet based businesses or, or businesses that that do a lot of work on the internet if you think of the bad human interactions as a form of pollution you're like okay we gotta we gotta have some clean air act for the internet kind of thing because that it's a byproduct right a lot of this bad stuff is a byproduct and you could and yeah they're gonna be a, a little bit less profitable in the same way that like, if you've got to run a clean business, if you've, if your job site is in compliance with OSHA, yeah, it's, you're gonna have other costs, but you'll still make money. And I think we just have to have that mindset of, you know, I, I feel like uh, like a lot of uh, people who have the power to um, to regulate or to start advocating for regulation have been cowed by this mm-hmm. idea of like, oh, but if it's not complete freedom, you're going to stifle growth. And it's like, okay, we're at the point where we have harms and we need to regulate. And so that's that's what I'd change. And still let people try things, but you should, like, your business shouldn't only be profitable because there's a body count. Yeah. Not cool.
0: Or... I'd maybe taken that when I think of a certain company that has just announced they'd change their name, change <laughs> their logo, that kind of deal. You know? So Yeah.
1: But that's such I mean Philip Philip Morris is Altria for the same
0: reason. <laughs> yeah. 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 So last question is, uh, what is your favorite part of front end development or design you do really like to nerd out over? Or it could be anything, you know, related to UX or, or whatnot.
1: Yeah. I, I, I mean, I nerd out about the people, you know, cause that, cause that's, that's what it's, uh, that's what it's all about, about is like, um, people are so people are like if you as systems if you think about the other side is the systems that interact with the systems we design and how they have all these relationships and ways of interacting people are just super interesting so i can nerd out about people all the time because the other stuff is cool um but i don't and i that's where that's where i started my career nerding out but i i feel like um like humans are just super interesting and you and i just nerd out about them
0: yeah i do a lot of people watching when i'm out on the weekend or something
1: so interesting
0: yeah (laughs) look at the
1: shoes look at people's shoes that tells you everything
0: yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so I'd like to close out the podcast with my guests, letting the listeners know what they currently have going on and where people can find you online. So I'll <laughs> let you have the floor.
1: Oh, thanks. Oh, what I currently have going on. I mean, I'm, I'm doing my mix of like we do our, our consulting and workshops and writing um, and uh, the place to find, find me. Like I'm, uh, I'm, always extremely on twitter at mule girl i'm on linkedin a lot of people have gone to linkedin as the less toxic social network um so you can find me there and then mule uh our our company website which is kind of neglected because we've been busy it's one of those things cobbler's children yep uh but you can get in touch with us there and um let's do some stuff and I'm on medium you can find me on medium I write stuff there but yeah on the internet around I haven't started my tiktok yet
0: um, (laughs) I tried that and I just I (laughs) I couldn't get into it for whatever I well I did get into it but it took me down a rabbit hole of I'll only go on for five minutes and then I'll go back to doing work. And then four or five hours later, I'm like, where did the day go? Where did the day go? So I, 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 can't, do that. I can't do that anymore. But I wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Erica. Um, it's been a great conversation and it was great to chat with you and everything. And uh, I, you know, looking forward to, seeing that book and is so i do have to ask before i'm gonna add another question here is
1: there
0: <laughs> is there going to be another edition of conversational design uh
1: i can i mean i'm not going to commit like may, that's a maybe 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 i mean get the uh, there have been some you know you've heard about the book supply chain issues yes uh get the, get the current one i think they're having pre-orders now so they're just going to yeah. do a batch because like books are books are sort of scarce yes uh but just go get all the a book apart books all of them yeah support all the authors they're all great
0: yeah i have them all so excellent yes yep yeah. So I want to thank you again for coming on and thank you listeners for tuning in to the Front End Nerdery podcast. I'll be back next time with a new guest, new conversation about front end design development and other topics. If you would please rate this podcast on your podcast device of choice, like, subscribe and watch on the Front End Nerdery YouTube channel. The links to transcripts and show notes are there. I'm Todd Libby and this has been the Front End Nerdery podcast. Thanks and we'll see you next time. Thank mm-hmm. you.